This podcast is brought to you by Athlon Partners. To find out more, head to athlonpartners.com. US businessman Dan Friedkin takes Red Bird take... has recently made waves. MLB and NBA appear to be the league. Sheeran becomes Ipswich Township. Saudi Prince adds French side Chatterone. NFL finalizes new 11-year media rights deal with Amazon. Hi, I'm Reese Lenarduzzi and this is Sportonomic, a show where I venture beyond the mere headlines and into the depths of the issues of sports business, sports law, sports economics and finance. In this episode, I look at breakaway sports leagues with a particular focus on the recent attempt of a European football super league and the proposals for a Saudi-backed golf super league. Joining me will be Dr. Antoine Duval, Senior Researcher at the TMC Asser Institute in The Hague, the Netherlands, and former professional golfer turned broadcaster, Ewan Porter. Antoine Duval defended his PhD at the European University Institute in Florence in September 2015. His thesis dealt with the legal interaction between the Lex Sportiva, the private regulations governing international sports, and EU law. He's the founder and editor-in-chief of the Asser International Sports Law blog, founder and the editor of the Yearbook of International Sports Arbitration, and a member of the editorial board of the International Sports Law Journal and International Sports Law Book Series, Asser Press. His research focuses on the role of private actors in transnational law, using the Lex Sportiva as his main case study. This was not the first time attempts had been made to form a breakaway league though perhaps one of the more advanced. In June 2016, news leaked that some of England's biggest clubs had met at the Dorchester Hotel in London to discuss such a prospect. Long before that, in 1998, an Italian media conglomerate was thought to have initiated plans for a Super League with Europe's biggest clubs. A variety of other moves have been made between these two examples. On Sunday, 18 April 2021, The self-titled by the orchestrators, Super League, issued a press release confirming its advanced intentions to commence its breakaway league. The media release is a rollercoaster read, listing the football clubs that had signed on, moving through some of the financials involved, attempts to suggest that this is a magnanimous project with football in mind, or with a sprinkle of, there's nothing anyone can do about this. The shape of the proposed league is or was closer in concept to the American sports models of the NBA and NFL, a closed league notion that is largely foreign to the football fan. This is just one of the many reasons why the Super League has caused outrage, with promotion and relegation considered a staple in the football pyramid. Having spent a considerable amount of time researching and writing under him, I waited in anticipation for comment as I knew he would break down the issues better than most. As predicted, his comments in the form of a Twitter thread were instructive. His first tweet, We are now entering a droit de guerre, phony war in English. Dr. Duval said, with both sides, digging their trenches and waiting for the actual legal attack. Well, in a sense, and given the Super League has not really come to fruition, we are still there. Antoine, Real Madrid, Barcelona, Juventus, all digging their heels in. A Madrid court case may be important, and even though the general consensus being that the Super League was over before it began, many interesting questions loom. Where, in your view, is the Super League now? 
Well, first, I'm not sure the Super League was over before it began. To many of us, it looked like it would actually happen. So taking such a risk and, and going public with the projects, I don't think many well-informed observers believed that it was just for the, for the fun of it. So a lot of us believed this was the end of European football as we know it. So now the Super League is definitely dead, but it's also in a way a zombie. The paradox being that there is actually a serious chance that despite the Super League blowing up, Real, Real, Barca and, and Juve might actually prevail against UEFA before the Court of Justice of the European Union. So we might end up with a Super League not going ahead, but making its point in terms of EU law and prevailing over UEFA and Real, Barca and Juve escaping any sanctions for the entire episode. And, and this is mainly because uh, of the way in which UEFA uh, sanctions the participation of its members in competitions not authorized by it. This sanctioning mechanism at this point is quite discretionary. It's almost arbitrary. There are no real clear criteria. Um, this doesn't mean that one could not think of a system in which clubs and potentially players would be sanctioned for joining a competing competition. But it would probably need to be set up very differently to meet the criteria that are outlined in the case law of the EU institutions, especially this International Skating Union case, which has been at the center of the attention. So it's quite likely that despite failing dramatically in their ambition to organize a Super League, the three clubs might actually <laughs> prevail and might secure their right to access the Champions League in, in the coming years. Turning our attention now to your Twitter threads that I thought were not only instructive and informative, but additionally entertaining and caused quite a stir in our circles, you ultimately posed the question, who can stop this? FIFA and or UEFA, European law or the market? Your tweet read, can fans, consumers turn their back on a Super League? In other words, do supporters care only about their team and big games with the big guys or also about the socio-cultural context and the thrill risk of an upset? I have no answer, just questions. You in a sense answer that question in your second Twitter thread, a post-mortem of sorts. Your tweet read, The Super League was driven by the idea that the American closed league model can simply be imported in the European context. Like many American exports, such as peace in Iraq or Afghanistan, it fails the test of context and local people. Culture, history, path dependence matter, and people are simply not interchangeable. Is this still, in your view, the crux of why the Super League fell apart? Or is there more to the story? And how could an institution like JP Morgan not foresee that reaction? Or was there simply little to lose and much to gain for them? Well, I have not really looked back at those tweets since I tweeted them uh, a few weeks ago. Um, but I, I think they, they age quite well. I mean, um, in the sense that I, I still believe that the crux of the reason or of the falling apart of the whole project is still linked to a totally misreading of the social context in which it was to be embedded. And it's definitely not linked 
to UEFA or FIFA's threat of sanctions. I don't think those sanctions played any type of prominent role in the falling apart of the project two days after it was announced. What played a role was that there was a huge, huge popular backlash. And now, from, from our perspective, uh, one month after, uh, we have this huge benefit of, of hindsight, and we can say that the whole project was, was kind of a mess. I mean, weirdly, it's not clear to me why the clubs had not anticipated a backlash and had no plan to ride it. I mean, it seems to me that they were really genuinely believing that they would be welcomed in a way, as maybe the savers of football in the face of an economic crisis triggered by COVID-19. That was a whole argument of the president of Real Madrid. Um, and, and that they were expecting their own fans to just rally in joy behind the idea of not having to play Leverkusen or Dinamo Zagreb ever again. I think that was probably the idea and the feeling and the expectation and that was a fundamentally wrong expectation. We, when I say we Europeans, um, are very much attached to the idea of a, of a meritocratic European competition, where there is no place to buy yourself a ticket to participate in it without earning it on the field. I think a lot of people were genuinely outraged at the idea that Arsenal, uh, a club that has not been doing well in the Premier League for uh, a few years now that has not been qualifying to the Champions League for a few years now, uh, was about to earn a permanent place to participate in that competition. It just struck a nerve and a nerve that is linked to injustice. And to be honest as well, there is also a certain amount of hypocrisy in this position. Um, it's also well known that money plays a big role in earning that ticket on the field. I mean, some are more equal than others in a way. Huh? It's not equality between PSG and Lens is not really equality. But as in many other areas of life, I think Europeans are truly fond of formal equality. So not so much the idea of an equality of chances at the start, but an equality of access to the competition. And, and ditching that fundamental idea was clearly uh, not a popular success. So regarding GP Morgan, I, I think without having any uh, insider information, uh, um, that this being an American institution, they just did not see anything particularly controversial in creating a closed league. I mean, you know, in the American context, this is just a norm. How could an NBA of football be dislikable? From their point of view, this is an absurd reaction. Huh? And I think it, it's just very hard for a New York-based finance executive to, to imagine such a popular backlash. I mean, even football or soccer in the U.S. is built around the closed league model. It's just ordinary. For them, and this is probably a good example and maybe a lesson for for American investors that um, it's dangerous to universalize your own position, your own belief, your own social context, and to um, 
invest from a position of uh, ethnocentrism. So here they should have taken much more into account the social context of um, their investment. And apparently they did not. And it's hard to blame them in a way because uh, the, the European clubs that were involved were also totally blind to that context, apparently. Still with your threads, you went on to mention the 1% having too much influence at FIFA and UEFA. I would argue axiomatically true, but what was shocking to me in this debacle was that FIFA and UEFA went on to look like the good guys who could save football. And I will ask you shortly to speak to this perhaps unanticipated result of that wild Super League week. You ended your first Twitter thread with exciting times with real opportunities for transformative change. And you ended your second thread with this was a crazy ride. It felt like years passed by in two days and in some sense they did. Football will never be the same. Can or will the opportunities for transformative change that the Super League debacle presents be the reason why football will never be the same? Or are other implications more likely? Of course, one of the theories floated for the Super League is that the entire show was for the big clubs to have even greater leverage in the variety of ways they have FIFA and UEFA in a chokehold. Your thoughts, Antoine? Well, I mean, there are, there are two different questions. I think one is, um, is about FIFA and UEFA looking good. And it definitely is uh, clear that this sequence was favorable to the image of FIFA and UEFA because they were sticking with the entire narrative of uh, formal equality that I was just explaining before. They were the one defending access on the basis of justice in a way being the best, the meritocratic access theory to, to European competitions. And in, in taking that position, they were the one siding with the majority opinion right now in Europe. So that was clearly a, a great a communication boon for FIFA and UEFA, that sequence. And in a way, it's served to hide under the carpet, let's say, uh, the 20 years of reforms of the Champions League that were, um, that were meant to make it more difficult for small clubs to access the Champions League and more difficult in a way for them to compete in it. So there is a paradox in that situation um, in that UEFA mainly is primarily responsible for uh, turning the Champions League into a, a big commercialized event that favors the richest clubs. And then turning to the second part of, of your question, which is more related to the implications and, and my um, maybe a bit too emphatic um, football will never be the same at the end of this Twitter thread where I was running very high on, on adrenaline and very low on sleep. Um, I think it's, it's a good question whether this, um, this will actually materialize in some changes or not in the way uh, football is organized at the European level, um, in the way the UEFA competitions are set, are set up. I think we will not know for um, before a bit of time whether this will um, have any transformative effects. But w what I meant mainly is that the Super League episode has shown in a way that in European football, the idea of a breakaway league um, 
a, a close breakaway league is, is not viable socially. It's just not viable right now in European society. So the breakaway league, the super league, let's call it, might very well be economically super viable. It might be true what Perez, the Madrid uh, um, executive, was, was stating, that it was a way to, to grow the pie bigger. It might be true that um, the Super League might be able to attract more uh, money into football. But the fans are not really interested in that. The fans are interested in a European competition where everybody can, in theory, participate. So in a way, what happened right now is that the idea of a breakaway league, which was a looming threat over the last 20 years over European football, it was used over and over again by big clubs to actually argue uh, in favor of reforms of the Champions League. So it was, it was a permanent imaginary threat. Well, in a way, it has shown that, that this threat is not, is not real, is not a realistic alternative to the way we have structured and set up football, at least at this point in Europe. Following the Football Breakaway League, news that had broken before indeed broke again of a Saudi-backed breakaway golf league. One news article read, Golf is facing its own version of football's failed Super League breakaway, with a Saudi-backed group ready to pump in $1 billion US dollars to launch their new competition. Another read, Having started out as the Premier Golf League, the project may actually now have been rebranded to include the word Super. Potentially the European Super League prompted another rethink. Offer letters and contracts are in the process of being delivered to a dozen of the most high-profile names in golf. Majed Al-Sarour, the chief executive of Golf Saudi, is fronting the operation. Analogous to the football scenario, the Saudi-backed league appears to make financial guarantees that may be favourable to the commercially-minded stakeholder, but it may miss the mark for the fan or the traditionalist that thinks uncertainty on all fronts makes sport what it is. One of the responses to the breakaway concept from the US PGA was to create a US $40 million bonus pool to reward players driving engagement. Sports Pro Media reported that popularity in Google search and social media engagement are among the metrics being used to determine a player's impact score. The initiative is designed to reward players that add to the PGA Tour's overall product. The pool is to be distributed among 10 players with the most valuable receiving US $8 million. I spoke to former professional golfer turned broadcaster and founder of the Adidas Junior Sixers Tour, Ewan Porter. Ewan, jumping straight in, will this Saudi-backed breakaway golf competition happen? And if it does, will we see the world's best players in such a competition or on such a tour? Whether it happens, uh, I, I really don't know that answer, to be honest with you, Risa. I would say in all likelihood, it's, it's not going to happen. Uh, I was actually in Saudi Arabia in January last year commentating at the European Tour event there for the European Tour and that's when basically everything, all the murmurs began. That's when uh, things started getting out in the press. Phil Mickelson was there. Uh, his reasoning for being there at the time was to inspect 
golf courses uh, in his golf course design business and there certainly may well have been an element of truth to that but um, he was there with his agent uh, and his brother who caddies for him and no doubt that uh, he had a few private meetings uh, in regards to uh, in regards to this breakaway league look I think what it's done is the, the proposed breakaway league in Saudi Arabia or spot or backed by um, the Saudi Gulf Saudi and Saudi money, excuse me, I think what it's done is highlighted perhaps a few inefficiencies of the PGA Tour and perhaps areas where um, they could improve. I, I just I just don't I just can't see it happening. I mean, honestly, without Tiger Woods and Rory McIlroy, your, your number one and two draw cards, whether or not they're number one or two ranked players in the world, as far as marketability is concerned, they, they are one and two. And without their support, I just can't see it happening. You have, in a sense, already touched on this, but I, I'll go there anyway. Is the timing of the proposed golf super league merely opportunistic, or is it a response? to a sentiment of tour players, of where some tour players' minds are at, and then in a sense the solution to a perceived issue or is the grind of traditional professional golf still the draw for top golfers and an enormous payday won't incentivize players to jump ship? Yeah, look, uh, at the end of the day, it is all it is all money. It's as simple as that. Um, the PGA Tour, they won't obviously... They won't sanction any of these events. They won't. Any player who breaks away from the PGA Tour won't be allowed to play any PGA Tour events. However, the top players, which are the ones, they're the ones that are going to be going and playing this uh, Super League, they would still be eligible to play the four major championships. And at the end of the day, those top players, that's all they really care about. They, They only care about the US Open, the British Open, US Masters, US PGA Championship. And if, if, the availability is there for them to play those four events. Well, then a concept like is being discussed, uh, you know, it's certainly favourable uh, for them. There's certainly something there that's enticing. And I do know for a fact that I won't mention who it is, but I, I do know for a fact one player that's um, officially been approached and his name's been thrown around quite a bit. With uh, with this Saudi-backed uh, Super League of golf, he's been in discussions with them for about eight years now. So this is not—I I don't see this as something that's opportunistic. This is uh, this is something that's the wheels have been in motion now for eight or nine years, and you could really go all the way back to the mid '90s when Greg Norman proposed a world tour of sorts, similar to what we see in tennis. Uh, a tour that goes all around the world. In golf, you've got a European tour and you've got a, a, a PGA tour in the US, but this this Super League would essentially be the world tour. It would be going all around the world and uh, promoting the game in those areas, which there's a lot of merit to that. Okay, again, you've you've kind of gone there already, but I'll, I'll, I'll ask it anyway because my understanding is that one of the, the key strategies of a Saudi-backed Super League would be to pay particular attention to Asia. Um, what are your views on this strategy? And if successful, might we see the likes of a Hideki Matsuyama, Sung Jae-im uh, and Siwoo Kim join this movement and I suppose maximise their commercial opportunities locally to the countries that they're from rather than slogging it out on a European or, or a US tour? And I suppose in turn, 
Could an Asian tour then, with deeper pockets than ever, uh, knock off the, the, their perch, uh, the European or the US tour, as the premier tours? Look, I mean, I see both sides of the coin there and both sides of the argument, to be honest. Look, the Asian tour has, has been around itself for 35 to, to 40 years and it struggles. It, it, it's, a, it's a good tour, but it's way below the European tour and the PGA tour. Uh, there was a tour that lasted for about four or five years back in the late 2000s called the One Asia Tour. Uh, they talked a big game. It was backed by the World Sport Group. It just it just didn't go anywhere. They didn't even they couldn't even develop any new events. They were pretty much just stealing events that were originally on the Asian Tour schedule. Um, the PGA Tour over the last ten years or so has delved into the Asian re- Asian region with events in Malaysia, uh, China, Korea, and it just it, it it doesn't really do it doesn't do anything for golf in that region. Uh, it doesn't get that much publicity. The crowds are certainly not anything spectacular. But then as, what, what you say is as far as sort of commercialising, uh, you know, the Asian-based players, your Matsuyamas, et cetera, Sungjae Ims, there's such a golden opportunity there that, I, I, look, for example, I know in Korea and Japan they have two or three tours just for the females golf is huge for females in those areas but for males it's still lagging behind i'm not sure exactly what the answer is to that but there's certainly an opportunity there to raise the bar raise the profile for golf in the asian region perhaps this could do that but what what this what they're proposing with this golf super league is a is essentially a team's element and I just, I just don't know week in, week out, having, having the best players week in, week out, whether it, I know it sounds sort of counterintuitive, I'm just not sure it's going to really draw the attention of the public. I think they'll get a bit bored with it. I think there's, there's certainly, uh, there's certainly in, in the, emotion, the emotions that the, that the average person feels watching someone battle uh, for their careers like you see on the Corn Ferry Tour or like you see at the end of the year on the PGA Tour with players trying to secure their jobs for the future. You know, again, it's kind of like soccer or, or football, if you like, with um, with the Premier League and the Championship and League One, having the relegation and the promotion battles. Things like that, you know, that's something that money can't buy. People love watching those experiences. And when you've got the top 20 or 30 players in the world 40 players, whatever it is, week in, week out, doing the same thing. I know they're in different countries and that part of it's cool in promoting the game globally, but I just see it getting tedious and monotonous pretty quickly. One of the responses to the Breakaway League appears to be the PGA Tour's $40 million player impact fund to reward engagement. Um, is this something you expect players to actively pursue or something that an agent would encourage their players to pay attention to or might this be short-lived and perhaps merely a superficial distraction from other opportunities like the Super League? Yeah, look, uh, I think it is superficial. I'm going to be honest with my answer there. We're, we're already seeing um, the supposed Bryson DeChambeau brooks Kepka feud um, that we saw at the PGA Championship sort of flare up a, a week or two ago. Uh, Tiger Woods jumped in there, you know, very inactive typically on social media. And as soon as they announced the, the $40 million carrot, he's in there, you know, with a picture of his broken leg on crutches and his dog. 
Phil Mickelson's uh, obviously very active on there, and it's it's cool to see that, but it's short lived. There's no question about it. I mean, it, it's nice to get to know these players, but I don't think look these that forty million dollars. I could think of. 10 different uh, ways that they could spend that more effectively and efficiently and putting money back into whether it's the corn ferry tour in the US or even just the grassroots of the game in junior golf. I think people would much prefer to see the money going there than the rich getting richer for superficial reasons, essentially. Beyond the commercially interesting elements to both the football and golf Super League proposals is the legal questions that surround breakaway leagues. Would EU law, in the interest of the good of the community, render UEFA the sole governing body in European football, or is that concept contrary to competition law articles in the Treaty for the Functioning of the European Union? And of the golf Super League, would the fines or the life bans from the sport being threatened against golfers stand up in certain jurisdictions? Life bans in the European context would almost certainly be rendered disproportionate, but how about the US? With the Football Breakaway League, it's European law that most interests us, but that's in a sense what makes the golf breakaway proposals interesting in that there may be a different outcome in a US competition law context. An extra layer is, of course, that both the European Tour and the US PGA have come out against it and threatened significant consequences, so... Even within golf itself, we potentially have different outcomes in different parts of the world. Antoine, what are your views on how both of these breakaway leagues may go in a legal sense in the context of Europe and in the context of the US? So to answer properly that question, you need to have a lot of contextual information that I don't have at this point, And that makes it difficult to, to provide a, a very precise answer. What I think I can say is that in both cases, um, be it in football or in golf, um, it seems to me difficult for established associations to entirely block the emergence of competing leagues unless they are conferred some type of public monopoly. And this is not the case at this point, and that would entail radically different management processes and accountability structures. So this means that in theory at least, if they have means to block the emergence of, of alternative competitions, they have to use those means in a proportionate way. And they have to allow for some competition to arise. The question is then, how far do they have to tolerate, let's say, for example, clubs that are competing with the competitions of UEFA have also the possibility to access national competitions of affiliates of UEFA. So one big question is, if you plan to create a breakaway league, shouldn't you be breaking away? Huh? So breaking away from the entire pyramid. I think here it's, it's easier to justify sanctions against clubs that want to have one foot in and one foot out, that want to, to profit on both sides. So I think there is a good argument to be made to say you're either in or out. Um, but if you're out, we have to make sure that players do not face disproportionate sanctions so that you have access also to those players. And the question is then, what is a disproportionate sanction? Um, and, and here again, we come into 
considerations that are related to context. The situation of football players is not at all the same of speed skaters. If you take um, International Skating Union as a, as a basis, um, this is a domain in which a speed skater that would not access the Olympic Games would have would lose a huge proportion of his or her economic opportunities. Um, we could argue, and uh, we would have to argue in front of a court uh, on whether this would be the same for a football player who is extremely well paid in a club of the Super League, um, but missing out on the World Cup. So whether I think the impact on the two different athletes would be very different. And therefore, the impact of a sanction would be very different. So just an example to tell you how difficult it is to, um, to make an assessment out of context. And I think this is uh, really important to note. A lot of people have been citing ISU during this, so the International Skating Union case, during this frenzy of opinion making during the, the Super League, um, I think here again, you should do it with care. There are a lot of elements of that case that are dependent on the particular setup of that case. And it might go differently in a different case. Um, but in any case, I think it is difficult or impossible, for example, for associations to ban for life players that decide to join a club of a breakaway league. And I think this would count as well for golfers that would decide to join a breakaway league. They should have always the opportunity and the possibility to come back on their decision. A key distinction between both concepts is that in the case of football, the players were not the decision makers, and in fact, many top players spoke out against the Super League and in turn their clubs. This raised a multitude of interesting employment law questions when fines and bans were floated against footballers as potential punishments for their participation in a Super League. Golfers, on the other hand, as it is an individual sport, will be signing up to the Breakaway Golf League themselves. What might be the legal implications for each, given this distinction? Well, here again, it's really hard to say um, without looking at, at, at the details. And we really, we didn't get that much details for, from the Super League in terms of uh, what was actually the setup for players. Um, so it's, it's, let's say, one implication which is, I think, relatively similar is that, and again, here I'm coming back to the previous question, in terms of sanctions, um, it, I don't think it was ever viable for FIFA or UEFA to exclude players for a long durée, for a long time, from their um, competition and the competition of their affiliates I think that would have been possible potentially only during the time of their contract with a Super League club, let's say. But after that, it, it would have been very difficult to justify such a, such a sanction. And in a way, I think the same might, might be true with golfers. So here there might be a limited difference 
um, in that both athletes um, would, I think, have to regain access to the competitions in questions after they terminate their engagement with a breakaway club or a breakaway league. I think another aspect of, of the question, which is not really at the center of, of what you were thinking of, but I, I think is relevant, is uh, connects to all the labor law issues that were uh, raised. And this is relevant, obviously, for uh, athletes when they are acting as employees uh, and not for the golfers who are service providers. Uh, I don't think golfers are members of a club or an employee of a club. So um, the football players as employees uh, were faced with a big change, a potentially massive change in um, their employment situation. And this was triggering potentially an enormous amount of questions about them being in a position to breach their contract with just a cause, for example. Because the club, and as, as you mentioned, many of the top players were against the idea of the Super League. Because the club decided to join the Super League, it might have been acceptable under labor laws and definitely under um, the interpretation of, of the FIFA RSTP for players to breach a contract and to move on to, um, to another club for free. So that is, that is a, a pending question. Whilst we were working on this episode, BBC reported that, separate to the Saudi-backed Golf Super League, detailed plans for a £250 million Premier Golf League aimed at revolutionising the professional game were about to be revealed. I'm excited to revisit this topic in a later episode. Thanks for tuning in to our first episode of Sportonomic. Make sure you find the show, follow and subscribe on your favourite podcast app. Next week, I'll be delving into the world of investment in sport as soft power, now widely known as sports diplomacy. A big thank you to this week's guests, Dr. Antoine Duval and Ewan Porter. Thank you to our sponsors, Athlon Partners. You can find further detail at www.athlonpartners.com. And thanks to our producer, Dan McHugh. If you'd like to get in touch, you can find me on Twitter at Reese Lenarduzzi. Sportonomic is an afternoon sport group production.